0: Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am, as always, your host, Karen Litzy. and I want to thank you all for joining me today and taking the time out to listen to the podcast. So, today I'm so excited. I am sitting down with Dr. Beth Darnell. I uh, found her on Twitter. And I can't tell you how excited I was to interview her. I could have, I had so many, this interview literally could have gone on for hours. Um, But a little bit more about Dr. Darnell. She is a clinical associate professor in the division of pain medicine at Stanford University and treats individuals and groups at the Stanford Pain Management Center She is an NIH-funded principal investigator for pain psychology research that is examining the mechanisms of pain catastrophizing treatment, including a novel single-session pain catastrophizing class she developed, and we talk a little bit more about that uh, later on in the interview. She is the co-chair of the Pain Psychology Task Force at the American Academy of Pain Medicine, and in 2015 received a presidential commendation from AAPM. She is the author of Less Pain, Fewer Pills and the Opioid-Free Pain Relief Kit. Her upcoming book, The Surprising Psychology of Pain, Evidence-Based Relief from Catastrophizing of Pain, is due out in 2017. And as a pain psychologist, she has 15 years' experience treating adults with chronic pain, and she lived through her own chronic pain experience, as have I. And she enjoys helping individuals with chronic pain gain control of their mind and body and live their best life. Um, she's amazing. She's so great. Um, and what she, what she had to say throughout this podcast was was amazing. I'm trying to, I'm like encouraging her, like you need to speak at, at, at physical therapy conferences because she really is, uh, she's smart. And she just knows her stuff. So anyway, what do we talk about today? We talk about the opioid epidemic and cost-effective treatment solutions that may be able to be incorporated into care. Talk about tapering off opioid use, how opioid use and chronic pain affect brain chemistry. We talk about her research into pain catastrophizing, Um, We define it and what patients can do if they have chronic pain and so much more. I am so thankful to Dr. Darnell. She was amazing. And we're going to get to the interview in a second. I just want to thank our sponsor for today, which is audible.com. So if you want to get a free month and a free download, go to audibletrial.com slash healthywealthysmart. And you can choose from over 180,000 different titles and listen to it on your way to work, on your commute, on your run, at the gym. Um, I I'm right now listening to two different books, and I mean I'm an Audible junkie all the time. So again, if you want your free month and your free download, just go to audibletrial.com/healthywealthysmart. Okay. So with that being said, uh, let's get to today's interview with Dr. Beth Darnell. Hi, Dr. Darnell. Welcome to Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart. I'm so excited to have you here.
1: Karen, I'm excited to be here too. Thank you so much.
0: Oh, thank you. And I'm, you know, we have a lot to cover today. Everything from the opioid epidemic to pain catastrophization to uh, how does that translate into if you're a practitioner, even if you're a patient. So, let's get started. Now, you talk a lot about the opioid epidemic. You wrote a book about it. So let's start with that. You know, there's obviously CDC recommendations that came down. We've got, uh, it's it's in the news. It's a huge part of the American Physical Therapy campaign. We have a hashtag ChoosePT campaign instead of opioids. So I'm going to kind of throw it over to you. Where, I guess, let's start with a little history. How did this opioid epidemic begin? And then we'll talk about some solutions.
1: It's a really great question. How did opioids become so overprescribed in the United States? And it's really been a phenomenon that's unfolded over, say, 15 years. Um, And how this came to be was... Really, not the cause of any one, um, one issue. There were several different factors that, um, coalesced at the same time that, that led to an overfocus on opioids for the treatment of chronic pain in particular. Because in the early 90s, opioids were really reserved just for the post surgical period, a limited amount, and also for cancer pain, end of life pain. And there was, A sea change in how opioids were prescribed beginning in the late 90s where it was put forward um, by pharmaceutical marketing, pharmaceutical companies, that opioids were safe for uh, long-term chronic pain uh, conditions and prescribing and that there was essentially no addiction risk associated with taking opioids long-term. Now, we know that that's not true today. Um, But there was this false marketing that was put forward, and some of these pharmaceutical companies were actually censured um, by the federal government for false information. Unfortunately, that information really trickled down. The marketing was effective, reached our doctors and prescribers in the United States who had very limited education about chronic pain treatment in medical school. I mean, Karen, it's alarming. As recently as 2011, physicians were receiving, on average, between four and 11 hours of education about pain over the course of four years of medical school. Wait, can you you say that
0: again? How many hours was that?
1: between 4 to 11 hours wow. of education about pain and it was fragmented it was you know delivered in bits and pieces you know embedded into disease topics like if you're covering diabetes we'll talk about neuro- neuropathic pain here etc but really no clear dedicated pain content if you're a veterinarian you're likely to receive 25 to 30 hours of education Education about pain so you can see how this really was a perfect storm of misinformation being put forward in what was a large vacuum that physicians were operating in and here in concert with all of this we also have something of an epidemic of pain I mean hundred million Americans have pain ongoing pain of some sort and where do they go for help they go to their primary care physician and so all of this combined uh, to really create what we see now, where um, opioids have been the go-to treatment for years, and people have not, they, they haven't improved on them on the whole. What we've seen is the fallout and problems from them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're right. The majority of time people have pain, they go to their primary care physician. And it's, a, no, it's not the... So if the physician just isn't getting the information necessary on pain indeed what's indeed. the solution, you know? So so is the solution a more robust pain education for physicians and I could even yeah. say for for a physical therapist or for any maybe any healthcare worker.
1: Absolutely. So we fundamentally need better education about pain for all healthcare providers in this country. And that was really recognized in the IOM report on pain put out in 2011. The National Pain Strategy discusses it. That was put forward um, just this year in 2016. There's a very clear recognition that we need better education in pain. I will say that there have been some improvements in medical education. You know many institutions are now, maybe not to the extent that we need it, but they're certainly putting forward the biopsychosocial model for treating pain, that it's not just, you know, a sensory perception that pain is actually a sensory and an emotional experience that requires a multimodal approach for effective treatment. So physicians are hearing this message. They're hearing biopsychosocial, but then we throw them into the world to practice and treat complex patients with overlapping pain conditions and they're they're actually ill equipped to implement the biopsychosocial model of pain treatment because they don't have good resources at the ready. Um, who are they going to refer to, for instance? How do we connect rural patients to good comprehensive pain care? These are some fundamental issues that we really need to be addressing at a national level.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely. And, and you know, I live, in a, I live in New York City. I live in a, in a large city. Um, where resources are a little bit more readily available. So what happens to people who are living in those more rural communities or maybe they don't have the support system at home to perhaps help with their care or even get them to see someone? So yeah. what, what happens then? And, and would this be kind of, you know, we we could kind of sort of segue into the solutions for some for this opioid epidemic. And I think one of them, like you just said, is... Is more education, more education for all healthcare providers. Um, but is this something where telehealth can come into play?
1: It's it's a great, great question and a great idea. Absolutely. We have to think creatively. Um, The result of people not having access to comprehensive treatment for chronic pain is that there's been this emphasis on the pill bottle, literally on opioids. And what we know, the data tell us that On average, now, there's exceptions, but on average, when people are on opioids long-term, they don't tend to get better in terms of pain and function. At least that's what the data, available data, tell us to date. And to the contrary, what we see is that when we treat pain multimodally, interdisciplinary, coming at it from multiple different directions where we're actually treating the person, not just the the pain or the experience of pain, we, we see people... People get better, so This is a question of resources. So we're talking about, you know, economics. And so people who are are poor not going to have great access to needed resources, more likely to get on these medications that are not necessarily going to be helpful. People who live in rural areas, we have to think creatively. You mentioned the idea of telehealth. That is a a creative solution. Um, We need to, um, in my opinion, you know, I I wrote two books on this topic specifically. Specifically so that people who live in remote areas or even in urban areas but just need access to specialized information, they can access that um, and they can do it at a very low cost. That's important. So being able to give patients resources at point of care, um, direct them to to solutions that they can implement immediately.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know at Stanford you are doing uh, some research into different ways to deliver this information. I think one was in in a group setting with maybe like a two-hour class versus having to have someone come in over eight visits or six visits or something like that. So, yeah. I mean, I think that's a great cost-effective way, and you've had pretty good results. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, really excited um about this treatment option so his- Historically, um, if, if you have the luxury of being sent to a psychologist, let's say you have chronic pain and your physician refers you to a psychologist, it's not because your doctor thinks your pain is all in your head or isn't real. Your doctor is smart, um, or your referring provider is very smart because they have an understanding that um, we we need to best help the individual with chronic pain learn how to manage it themselves. You know, there's skills and information that you can learn and and use to actually dampen pain processing in your nervous system. This is evidence-based medicine. Um, And it's effective. It it works. It's great. The problem with cognitive behavioral therapy, psychological treatment for pain is that it's typically delivered um, each week in group sessions, two-hour sessions for eight weeks. And so that's 16 hours in class and then you factor in travel time, and then maybe there's co-pays, and you can quickly see that there are barriers for people with chronic pain to access this treatment, especially people who are working, who maybe don't have insurance coverage, etc. So the question is, you know, how do we create solutions that are low cost, low burden, that uh, are scalable so that you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of people can easily access them. And that's where um, I developed a two-hour pain psychology class that specifically targets uh, pain catastrophizing. It helps people understand, you know, how our thoughts and our feelings can actually amplify pain in our nervous system. Or we can learn ways to dampen that pain processing in the nervous system to essentially gain control and if we have less pain that means fewer pills fewer doctors all of that. It helps people learn how to put themselves in the driver's seat. So we studied this class, published our results in 2014, um, got some great results for our pilot study, very promising. And in 2015, we're awarded a $4 million grant from the NIH to study this further, to better understand um, the efficacy and the mechanisms of this class. If we, And these studies are underway right now, Karen. If we're able to To show on a large scale in, in a tightly controlled scientific environment that this class is effective, it will be a game changer in how we treat. Chronic pain and and how rapidly we can plug people into resources that are essentially free because this is something that we can just put on the internet. I mean, these are classes that we we can make video classes. Um, my vision for the future, my hope and my dream is that no person with pain um, will remain suffering as a result of you know lack of access to information. We need to make this information freely available to. All people with
0: chronic pain, yeah, and I think that would be amazing. And again, what a great solution or alternative for for an opioid for opioids in general and for medication in general. And it just it, it seems to me like that is such a great way to a great example of sort of the triple aim of healthcare, right?
1: Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. And, you know, I always say, you know, I, I work in a, in a pain clinic. I work with people with chronic pain. And, you know, I, I have seen opioids help some people. I mean, really, I, what I will say, though, is that the, the fraction of people who really are more functional and get better, it's, it's a sliver of what we're seeing in the United States. So it's, clearly, they've been overemphasized, overprescribed, but even for those individuals, For whom they are appropriate. Or let's say you and I have surgery tomorrow and we have a few, you know, opioids prescribed for post surgical pain control. It's incumbent upon all of us to do everything that we can to ensure we take the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. And so we're actually participating in our pain experience and in our overall health. So this information is relevant to all of us, whether we want to avoid opioids altogether or whether we are taking them, but we're still, we still want to be sure that, you know, pills are just one one part of our pain care plan, and they're certainly not the most important part.
0: <laughs> right. They don't have to be the keystone of the plan.
1: No, and that's the big problem that we've seen in the United States over the years far, Far too many Americans will go to their doctor, and they're prescribed pills, and that's the end of the conversation. It's just like, oh, okay, I just take these, and it's supposed to get better. Well, they don't get better, right? And so what do they do? They increase the dose, and then they increase the dose, and it gets really scary. And people you know, people have been put at undue risk because we have failed to provide comprehensive pain treatment that is effective.
0: Right, and, and like you said, a lot of times taking more opioid or taking them for longer, the data shows that it doesn't necessarily decrease their pain or improve their function in the long term. So the next question is, is let's say you are one of these millions of Americans who, ha- who are, have been on an opioid for long term. Is it okay for that patient to taper off an opioid on their own? So, you or- know... Uh- what I heck, have, a, what do you do?
1: Yeah, I have a whole section in in my book talking about this, and the first thing, the most important thing for people to know is that if you want, if you really want to get off opioids, um, you can. Uh, Some people don't want to. Some people just, you know, they're they're satisfied with with where they are and, you know, I'm not here to judge that, but if you are an individual and you say, yes, I'm interested, I want to get off opioids, what you need to hear is that you can. Maybe you tried in the past and it didn't work or, you know, often people will maybe miss a dose and go into withdrawal and then falsely believe that, you know, they they just need the medication forever and they can't ever get off them. There is a method to taper off opioids comfortably. And I, I encourage you to talk to your doctor. Um, you know, I, I talk about this in my book as well. If you go slowly enough with a taper, you can avoid the uncomfortable withdrawal symptoms that most people are incredibly afraid about. Um, but I always say, talk to your, do- let your doctor know what you're doing. I mean, so, so that's just my disclaimer. My second disclaimer, is that I'm not a medical doctor myself. I am not uh, a physician. So, you know, I I say that to everyone right off the bat. Um, But I can tell you that if if you come off opioids, um, you know, reducing opioids in and of itself doesn't cause life-threatening problems like other medications. If you stop them, um, you you know, quickly can cause life-threatening problems. But what If you stop opioids too quickly you will have that uncomfortable really distressing withdrawal symptoms and the trick is to uh, avoid that and you you can do that we are in the process of doing some opioid tapering studies right now what our research and the research of others is showing that um, with a slow opioid wean um, two things either people's pain stays the same or it actually gets better. And this is an astounding message for a lot of people on opioids because the assumption is, well, my pain is so bad on them. How am I going to cope if I get off opioids? I, I won't be able to handle the pain. The assumption is that pain will increase when in fact what we see is essentially the opposite. Pain actually gets better as people go down and off opioids. Wow.
0: Well that, and that's You know, for any clinician out there, that's a great piece of information to kind of be able to express to your patient Um, so that because I think a lot of people are scared. No question.
1: Um, There is so much fear around stopping opioids because, again, the assumption is my pain will increase. And and most people have had some experience with that. You know, maybe they tried to go off them too quickly. And one of the symptoms of withdrawal is increased pain. And so, you know, so the trick is to really help people get through the taper slowly enough so that they don't have those withdrawals so that they can get to to the other side where pain is actually lower. Um, But it's this anxiety about the opioid taper, about withdrawals, the false perception that I simply can't get off them that has served to maintain a lot of these prescriptions for months, years, and even decades.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think that's where this multimodal treatment team needs to come in. Right, So that you have more than just the doctor prescribing you the medications, but seeing a pain psychologist, maybe seeing a physical therapist, seeing a, you know, an occupational therapist, um, and, and exercise, maybe a trainer or something like that. I think that's where that multimodal treatment really needs to come in.
1: I completely agree. Pain psychology can be particularly effective around the time of uh, an opioid wean or a taper because if there's any, you know, you're likely to have some stress, some anxiety. You want to be able to use those skills. keep yourself as calm as possible uh because if you keep your stress low you keep your anxiety low you will help keep your pain low and that will help you meet your taper goals the other thing to know is that when we take opioids you don't know, really Changes brain chemistry. It actually changes the structure of the brain, but so does chronic pain itself. But we see, we really see uh, changes in the structure of the, of the brain in individuals who are prescribed opioids. And so you you also want to think of it as like you know you're you're rewiring, you're recovering, and exercise and um, enjoyment and and really you know going out and getting back to doing the things you love. Do you these are going to help facilitate your your brain as it's as it's rewiring as you're managing pain differently as you're becoming more and more active and functional and and that's kind of the exciting part about it.
0: And I, it's so interesting that you just said that. Uh, my next question was: Is there an effect of long-term opioid use on the brain, which you already answered? Um, but does that also include, what if you're on just a low dose? Let's say you're on 7 or 10 milligrams a day. Does it still have an effect on the brain? Because some people say, no, it doesn't. And what does the research show?
1: You know, there there really isn't good data on this topic. You know, part of the problem is that we don't have enough good studies on opioids, particularly starting with opioid-naive Patients and really characterizing them, you know, scanning them, then administering opioids newly, and then seeing if there's changes. Now, some of those, uh, the few studies that have been done, like that, we're here at Stanford, but they weren't. Um, they weren't limited to people on low dose, you know, like low dose, you know, Percocet or Vicodin or what have you. So we, th- those data just don't exist. I mean, it's, it's part of the problem where vexed with is this you know everyone wants to find this safe threshold right like well or you know so if I just keep it really low am I safe or if if I just prescribe if I make sure that I only prescribe below 120 milligrams per day that's okay and you know, I think on the one hand, you, you don't want to sort of be a fear mongerer and scare everyone into thinking, you know, uh, that that even a very small amount is somehow toxic. But, you know, I just caution people that, you know, we just simply don't know. So I, what I always say, though, is that there are things you can do to minimize your risks. Nobody can say there's no risk. And I don't believe there's no risk. But you can minimize your risk. by keeping your doses as low as possible, and for the shortest period of time. Um, You know, there are going to be some people who will be adamant in saying that they absolutely need, you know, this X amount dose. But if what I would encourage people to do is be sure that they're managing their pain comprehensively, self-managing, doing everything they can so that they're sure that they need and use as little of the medication as possible.
0: Yeah, and, and that makes sense. And and then one more question kind of about opioids, and then we're, I think we're going to shift gears a little bit. But this was a question that I had gotten from a patient of mine who is on an opioid for CRPS and I think this is a pretty powerful question and it's how do we make sense of something like prince's overdose death and should any changes in medication be monitored by a doctor or is this just taken or is just taking an opioid that dangerous
1: yeah, so um, there are specific risks with opioids. I think in, in this case, when when we're talking about prints, and we're talking about overdose, I mean, you know, w- usually what the data show is that um, people rarely die from opioids alone. Actually, they die from a combination of factors. It's it's people are at most risk when they're taking opioids with a benzodiazepine with another drug that's a central nervous system depressant. So, opioids depress the central nervous system, so do benzodiazepines and those two medications together um, actually synergize to amplify these depressant effects, Um, so does alcohol. Um, There are other drugs that do that similarly. And so then what happens is, you know, people go to sleep and they just stop breathing. They don't wake up. This is how people are dying from opioids. If if you're an individual and you have sleep apnea, you're at greater risk. If you have a lung infection, you know, if somehow respiration is compromised. You are at greatly increased risk for, you know, having a, a, what is essentially a fatal overdose, even at theoretically safe levels because you're more vulnerable under these circumstances. So, you know, we want to just kind of keep that in context. Prince's overdose death um is is an you know, it's interesting um and and I mean, in all due respect, I mean, it's tragic and and horrifying. The case itself, if we just want to take a look at the circumstances, um, we don't know if there was history of addiction. For instance, he's not necessarily the average person who's taking opioids exactly as prescribed. So, I want to be clear about that. Um, Some of the, you know, Anecdotal stories that I've read, which are not necessarily fact, suggest that um, that there may have been multiple pharmacies involved. Um, it's unclear if there were multiple doctors involved. And so, in these cases, and let's just take a, a hypothetical patient who is doctor shopping, is getting medications from multiple providers. Well, that's a that's a different ball of wax than a, than you know than your average patient with chronic pain. So. So the thing to know is yes, these medications um, are you know carry risks for overdose. Medication changes are dangerous, so always let all of your healthcare providers know if a change is being made. Um, and so, if you're a prescriber, you want to monitor for doctor shopping for addictive. Behaviors, And that's why we have these prescription drug monitoring programs that allow doctors and prescribers to go onto a database to see where is this patient getting their medications. You know, in, in the case, of, I've seen certain celebrity cases where they use pseudonyms and, you know, it's... it's it's really difficult to control in that case, but not necessarily the case for the everyday person. Um, What I would say to this, um, to this person who, who asked this great question is, you know, where possible, let's, you know, as as healthcare providers, avoid prescribing opioids. Emphasize non-opioid options. When we start to think about maybe prescribing opioids, screen screen diligently for risks to make sure it. You know that that this is a low risk, as low risk as possible for this particular person. Monitor them very very closely. Um, and we want to ask ourselves a critical question: Are people getting better? And this is where we've really fallen short is opioids will be prescribed and then nobody's tracking long term to see if they're getting better or if there's new risk factors or addictive behaviors. So it's a constant process of monitoring. And the last thing I'll say about that is we need to do better at stopping what isn't working. If people aren't getting better, if their pain is only worsening, um, let's not add more of what isn't working let's stop it and emphasize the alternatives
0: yeah and and I think that's the key to me it sounds like being actively monitored yes seems to be the thing that's key because a lot of times you know you can call up and or the the pharmacy calls and the doctor just prescribes more
1: Absolutely, yes, yes, and you know they come in and they only have you know their eight minutes with the patient, and the patient's in distress. Um, they're asking for more. Their pain is higher. And, you know, theoretically, there's every justification to just write the script. Um, but we know too much now. We know that that is not the solution. But it's easy to see how we have backed ourselves into this corner as a nation.
0: Yeah. And, and now, you know, I think, like we spoke earlier, I think there are some solutions coming down the, coming down the pipe. And I think, you know, what you're, the research that you're doing at Stanford is is really great research and, and I think can be a big part of that solution and the, what you had said earlier, the NIH grant, which congratulations, that's amazing, um, thank you for your pain catastrophizing research is is great, and I think it's a, a, a huge step in the right direction. But before we get into this, can you define pain catastrophizing first so that people yeah. understand what we're talking about? It's a good yes,
1: yes, absolutely. And it's a it's a mouthful. So I will unpack that. So yes, pain catastrophizing. In a way, it's what it sounds like, right? Catastrophizing. It's you know, this this idea of um any experience or an event being a catastrophe and so it's when we uh, are focused on the worst aspects of our pain. We have trouble focusing on anything but the pain, so we're sort of ruminating about it, magnifying it. Our attention is really held on the pain and it's when we feel helpless about pain. So it's when we might have thoughts like, my pain is awful and I can't stand it. It's never going to get any better what if this only gets worse what if there's something seriously wrong it's these types of thoughts that we have where we're focusing on worst case scenario and look we all catastrophize from time to time i'm convinced you know it's 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 sort of human nature and we could catastrophize a relationship finances i mean you name it almost anything but when it comes to pain when we are catastrophizing our pain it turns out to be incredibly toxic, so even though it's understandable that someone would catastrophize pain, particularly when it's severe, um, it turns out that it's toxic because what it does is it facilitates pain processing in the nervous system. It amplifies it. So the example that I tell my patients is, you know, imagine that your pain is a campfire. It's a small campfire and, you know, you live with it every day. You know it well. When you catastrophize your pain, get into that negative space with um, your thoughts and and your feelings and focusing on it. It's like picking up a can of gasoline and pouring it on that fire. And it literally has that effect. We have neuro Imaging studies, and we're able to see that when people catastrophize, it lights up areas of the brain associated with pain. You're literally growing pain in your brain and the spinal cord. And so Pain is not a passive process. Um, We're participating with it. We have a big role in whether our pain gets better, whether we're able to control it, or whether it gets worse. And nobody wants worse pain. Everyone just (laughs) wants it to go away or get better. But when we don't have the right skill set in place, we can unwittingly be contributing to the amplification of our pain. This is what pain catastrophizing is. This is what it does. And the good news is it's treatable. So I'm, I'm really dedicated to helping people understand this so that they can learn to have better control over their thoughts, their emotions, and actually what's happening in their nervous system.
0: And so what are some, let's say, the most important things for, for patients with chronic pain who are maybe having these thoughts? What are some important things for them to know? What can they do? Yeah,
1: so this is kind of the realm of cognitive behavioral therapy, right? And so we first want to have a basic understanding of, you know, what, what is the impact of, of my thoughts on pain? How does that work? You know, and then, and then once we understand that, we want to be able to identify, well, what are my negative thoughts? You know, how does, how, how does this show up for me? How am I? Am I doing this? When do I do it? How do I do it? And then we want to work to shift that, to simply learn skills to change that so we have a different skill set available to us so that when catastrophizing comes up, um, we can essentially, the way I like to explain it is you learn to change the channel in your brain because it's naturally going to come up, especially if you know that you catastrophize often, well, you've, you've got some good pathways laid down in your brain. Your brain's naturally going to go there. You're naturally going to feel that way. Like automatically, you're going to have those thoughts. and it, it just happens without you even trying. So then the trick is to change that. There's different skills we can use. I talk about, I, you know, my new book is called The Opioid-Free Pain Relief Kit. And I talk about a lot about catastrophizing, how to change the channel in your brain, how to go through some simple cognitive behavioral therapy exercises to essentially retrain yourself, to retrain the patterns, the patterning in your brain and also in your neuromuscular system. Because when we're catastrophizing or when we have a lot of pain, it um, causes a lot of tension and a lot of stress. And we want to be able to calm all of that down once we're calming Our brain, our body, our nervous system down, it's a lot easier to make different choices. It's a lot easier to think differently when we're in that nice, calm place. So it's it's kind of teasing a little of that apart. Um, But what I want people to hear is that um, these are really simple skills that anyone can use. The trick is to use them regularly. Learn them and use them regularly because that's what helps rewire your system.
0: And so, you know, we're obviously talking all about pain here. And if if all pain, this was a question from, from a, a listener, um, if all pain is neurogenic, which is defensible, what are the potential origins of pain and why would they ever include something aside from the nervous system? You know, so we're talking about... Uh, kind of like, as you were saying, you're kind of retraining patterns within the brain. So are there potential origins of pain that would be something aside from the nervous system?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, so pain is so complex. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the most interesting experiences, there's so many different factors that play into it. I mean, the nervous system is exquisitely involved so is the immune system, so is the endocrine system, you know, musculoskeletal factors, you know, there's anything can cause pain almost, right? You know, an injury, an insult, a disease, a toxin that can cause changes, not just in the nervous system, but maybe in multiple systems that have these ramifications that lead to pain. And then, but the question is, how much pain do we have? How long does it last? How quickly does it resolve or not? Those types of questions um, the nervous system has a big role in in speaking to those questions, that's because that's where we kind of the nervous system leads us into this area where we're really talking about the modulation of pain and and the facilitation of pain, the exacerbation of pain. So that's why there's always a, a focus on the nervous system because no matter where you feel pain in your body, no matter wh- how it got started or why, um, you know the the problem processing of it will occur in the brain and the spinal cord. And that's what we can target with some of these treatments and therapies so that we're able to dampen the experience of pain. But, you know, an individual can have rheumatoid arthritis and it's, you know, it's in the immune system and it's in the bones and, you know, it's, it, it's all there. These are, these are medical conditions of mixed etiologies um, but the nervous system is still a critically important part in helping decrease not only pain intensity, more importantly, how much a person suffers from pain.
0: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up, the sort of suffering part of it, because the, the person suffering may have nothing to do with the quality of pain or the intensity of pain.
1: Indeed. Indeed. Absolutely. And so pain is such an individual, personal experience. And, you know, Karen, you and I can both be exposed to the exact same painful stimulus. And for me, it might be a, a, my, I might say, wow, that is nine out of 10. And you might say, you know, it's unpleasant, but it's like a four out of 10. And how do we explain that? Those are the individual differences that explain so much of the suffering of pain and it, It's no less legitimate. You know, my pain being more severe, your pain being less severe, one is not less legitimate than the other. Everybody's pain is legitimate, but it's incumbent upon all of us to help people learn how to suffer less, and that's possible no matter what level of intensity a person's pain is.
0: Yeah, agreed, and and that's where... Obviously, pain psychology comes into play, and there's like interesting research on meditation. I know there's some being done at Stanford, some at Harvard. Um, yeah, she's escaping me. the The doctor who's doing this at Harvard, anyway, I can't remember her name. It'll come to me afterwards. But a, a lot of that is the research on meditation is very interesting because it does kind of address the suffering aspect of it.
1: It does, and you know what? What we're seeing is um, what, what's really cool about um, meditation, and also cognitive behavioral therapy. They both contribute, like they both have some of the same mechanisms. Both treatment modalities, which are fundamentally psycho behavioral in nature, mindfulness-based stress reduction, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy, we teach people how to shift attention away from pain. That's a critical component. So you learn how to, you know, that part about catastrophizing where it holds, pain is holding your attention and it's, that serves to amplify pain. And then nervous system. And so what you learn is a skill set to shift attention away, to be less reactive to the pain because pain is one thing, but how we respond, Bond to pain is where the rubber meets the road. And so that's where there's an opportunity to learn how to calm ourselves. That's what CBT does, that's what mindfulness based stress reduction does. And we're able to see, you know, put people in the scanner and be able to see that it changes the way the brain functions when we use these skills. And what it does is it it uh, dampens the processing of pain. You can see that it, it helps keep those areas uh, associated with pain, those light up less or they don't light up at all. And long-term, this is the cool thing, Karen, is that there's studies, uh, imaging studies, pre and post cognitive behavioral therapy for pain. So pain psychology, they go through that eight week training. And we see that not only does this the functioning of the brain change such that it dampens pain processing, The studies actually show that it changes the structure of your brain, so over the course of eight weeks what happens is you're increasing um, gray matter volume in the areas of the brain that are associated with pain control.
0: And what does that mean, so what we have more gray matter, What 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 does that mean?
1: Yeah, it means that essentially we're strengthening those areas. What we're seeing is, you know, it's evidence of neuronal growth, essentially. Whereas, you know, when, with some other modalities or experiences, like for instance, when you take opioids or even the experience of chronic pain, we see atrophy in areas of the brain, which suggests, you know, that there's, uh, you know, there's volumetric loss. And so there may be some neuronal death. Um, there's, you know, hypotheses about what's leading to these ba- brain changes, but what we are seeing is atrophy. Then when people go into some of these rehabilitative types of treatments, I'm convinced you see it with exercise too. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very specific where you see these volumetric increases um, that suggest that there's neuronal growth, that a person is strengthening areas of the brain. They're using these areas of the brain associated with pain control. It's physical evidence for what patients are reporting. Anyway, I mean, they're reporting that they have better control over their pain, and we're linking that to biological structural changes in the nervous system that support it. I, I think it's the coolest yeah, thing.
0: Yeah, that is. I agree. It's definitely very, very cool. And um, now a lot of my listeners are a lot of healthcare providers. So let's say you're a healthcare provider, you're a PT and OT, um, and you're interested in bringing aspects of CBT or ACT approaches to your practice. Do you have any recommendations where we can get started? Are there courses, or books, or seminars? This was a good question from from a listener as well.
1: Yeah, that is a really great question. More and more, these types of trainings are um, coming online. So. Um, you know, my my first sort of recommendation is, you know, wherever you are, like, just kind of do some local searching, even Googling to see what's available in your area for in-person um, trainings. My my personal opinion is it's always best if we kind of have those immersive in-person trainings when possible. Um, but, you know, that's not the case for a lot of people um, to, to go, you know, busy professionals. There are some great resources. On just basic cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of pain. Um, Mark Carlson has written um, a really great book, so I would recommend people check that out. His book talks about integrating in. ACT, CBT, DBT, mindfulness into clinical practice that really gets at what you're talking about. Um, that book, that's Mark Carlson is the author, and there's a couple of other authors you know who, who write very specifically about CBT for um, it, it, it's more CBT for pain. So they're really written more for therapists, but if you're a healthcare professional, um, it will be suitable for you as well. And two authors that are really great um, are. Beverly Thorne and John Otis. And I also want to um, mention that for listeners who treat kids, you know, pediatric pain, um, there are a couple great books. One is by uh, Tanya Palermo and the other is by Rachel Coakley. And um, these are for cognitive behavioral therapy for the management of pain in children. Um, The last thing I want to say is that um, educate yourself. If you have not um, been through a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, if, if you yourself um, haven't been trained in some of the basics, like diaphragmatic breathing, um, even you know gentle yoga, what have you, um, I, I do recommend that people experience that for themselves, so that they can then describe it to their patients as, as an insider, as, as an expert themselves, having gone through the program.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And don't worry people, if you didn't get all of those uh book recommendations down, they're all, they are all in the uh notes sections on on the pod, on the podcast website. So, so just you can head over there and get all of that info. Um and then we have like one last question from a viewer and I think we're going to start wrapping things up although I feel like I could talk for hours to you. Um so uh, one last question is, what are your thoughts or insights into non psychology trained professionals using psychological interventions? Should we be concerned about treatment fidelity? So I guess um, the question becomes yeah. when do you refer out? When are we stepping over the line
1: yeah i think I think you always refer to the specialist that 's my personal opinion. Always refer. But that doesn't mean I mean it's not mutually exclusive. I mean, integrate in some of these principles. There's there's great evidence showing that, you know, physical therapists can integrate in some some basic languaging or concepts, self-management, um, helping with some, you know, just restructuring or reframing some let's say an individual's catastrophizing during, you know, as they're learning movement or whatever. So the therapist can be very skilled in helping them reframe whatever sensation they're experiencing or to help, um, help them, you know, steer them in the direction of calming themselves and being more receptive to the modality. So I, I my personal opinion is that if we're really going to treat pain well, we all need to know a bit of each of the other disciplines that, that best treat pain. So, I know a fair bit about pain medicine. I'm not... A physician. I don't prescribe, but I can talk to you very intelligently about opioids. It's also my area of research and other um, aspects of, you know, medications. Um, similarly with physical therapy. Now, I'm not going to go and uh, make a physical therapy prescription, but I know enough about it where I can steer people in the right direction and be able to incorporate some of the basics of, you know, the core principles in how I language um, comprehensive treatment, for instance. Um, but I do think that uh, physical therapists can certainly and patients, the patients will benefit greatly by physical therapists having um, some core knowledge about CBT principles, even if they're not they're not going to be treating their patients as a psychologist, as a therapist, but understanding the I mean, knowledge is power.
0: Uh, absolutely. And and so it sounds like as, as a healthcare professional, it's not a psychologist, being able to integrate basics and, and like you said, the language, maybe helping to reconceptualize some things is okay. <laughs>
1: For sure, uh, no question about it. I think that we need to I think we're remiss if we don't use some of those you know some of the those basics to our advantage to help to help shepherd patients through the process um, but again it 's not mutually exclusive if you have if you have active great pain psychologists are in the patient's area, um, refer them to those providers and and vice versa and that goes for any Specialist
0: area. Yeah, absolutely. So it's again just bringing in that team approach to your patient with pain, with particularly with persistent pain.
1: Agreed. Agreed. That's very well stated.
0: And and now we're about to wrap things up but gosh I have so many I could talk I could literally just I I was so excited about this interview I feel like I could just keep going um but I guess both of us have to probably go back to work at some point today (laughs) um but before we go um are there any sort of thoughts that you would like to leave the listeners with you know
1: I think that one of the most important messages um, that, as you know, if, if we're a healthcare provider, one of the most important messages that we can give, and and if it's a patient listening, one of the most important messages you can hear, is that the most important person on the healthcare team isn't. The doctor or the psychologist or the physical therapist, it's the patient. And so if you have chronic pain, you are the most important person on your healthcare team. And my hope and my wish is that every Person on your healthcare team will have a similar philosophy that is focused on empowering you to acquire the right information and the right skills so that you can best self-manage your pain and your symptoms, so that you're able to become more functional, to enjoy more of the life that you have, even with the health conditions that you have, so that you're able to live your best life possible. So, you know, a lot of times we'll get competing advice from different doctors. It's really important that you surround yourself with um, members of your healthcare team who share the philosophy that you have. So if you're focused, if your goal is to use less medication, your goal is to become self-sufficient and self-manage, um, be sure that your healthcare providers share that philosophy. And, um, you know, they're, and, and, if you, and if you don't, if you don't have that on board, then consider maybe seeking out someone who does share that philosophy, who's going to support you in going forward.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, that is so key, you know, knowing that it, when you're the patient that everyone is on the same team and kind of has you as the center, just just knowing that alone can sometimes help ease your pain.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed and and it's so critical. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we, you know, I'm doing a great job if I help people get to a point where they don't need me. Right. And right? I mean, yeah, so, so so that's part of my job is to get myself out of business as quickly as possible with each with each person. Then I I know I'm doing my job well. And so that that's really the cornerstone is that patients should be learning, growing, becoming empowered and um, living better lives as they're working with healthcare professionals. So always keep that in mind. There's a lot of resources out there. Um, thank you in advance, Karen, for posting a lot of these resources on your site. Um, it's it, it's a wealth of information. I, I encourage everyone to
0: access it. Yeah, and and just so people know, you have two books. One the opioid. Free Pain Relief Kit, uh, 10 Simple Steps to Ease Your Pain, and the other book, Less Pain, Fewer Pills, Avoid the Dangers of Prescription Opioids and Gain Control Over Chronic Pain. Where can people get these books?
1: Easily on Amazon. Um, That's always the easiest place, and you can always visit my website for more information too.
0: Yeah, and and Dr. Darnell's website is BethDarnell.com, and she's also on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle?
1: At Beth Darnell.
0: Yeah, so I found you on Twitter as I, (laughs) because I was looking, I was like, oh my gosh, this person is perfect. Um, And so I did a little Twitter stalking, and then and then now here we are. So we ended up having a great, great discussion and conversation all around opioids and chronic pain and CBT and pain psychology. So I thank you so much for coming on today.
1: Oh, Karen, it was perfect. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, It was really a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much. And everyone, as always, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy and smart.